This episode is sponsored by More Than A Number, the brand new podcast from ICAEW. Search More Than A Number in your podcast app to hear Louise Cooper and thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. Boris Johnson's on a path to passing his deal, but is he going to try and go for an election first? And as months of grenade attacks blight Swedish neighbourhoods, we get to the bottom of why Swedes don't want to talk about the rise in violent crime. And finally, does grammar matter? First up, although Boris Johnson hasn't yet passed his Brexit deal, James Forsyth and Katie Balls write in this week's cover piece that the Prime Minister is in a stronger position now than he was on the first day he took the job. Now, all he needs is an election. So, what are his new tactics? Katie and James speak to James Mills, former advisors Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. James, in our cover piece this week in The Spectator, we point out the reasons why some Tories, at least, are feeling fairly optimistic about their chances if that election does happen in the near future. Why is that? The reason number 10 are straining at the leash to have an election, we discussed this before we wrote the piece, is, is essentially this, is he has succeeded in squeezing the Brexit party down to a manageable level for the Tories. And he has shown them that he is the guy trying to get Brexit done. Brexit party are now down to 11%. That is far a far lower share of the vote than he had when he became Prime Minister. But at the same time, getting a deal has changed things because I think there were quite a few Tory MPs in Remain leading seats who normally have very large majorities who are beginning to get a bit worried that fighting a no-deal election could be, or an election where the Tories were at the very least threatening no-deal could have been very hard. And I think the view now is that they're in a kind of Brexit sweet spot politically where you could pile into, if, if the election took place tomorrow, you could pile into Labour leave seats in Wales, the West Midlands and the North East saying, you've got to vote for us to get Brexit done. Parliament keeps blocking us. Labour keep blocking us. If you vote Labour, you'll have another year of Brexit wrangling and a referendum that's going to be really divisive. Just get this done and vote for us. While at the same time, Tory MPs who've got the Lib Dems in second place can say, look, Brexit There's not going to be no deal. I can completely guarantee that. We have already negotiated a deal Brexit. It's going to be smooth, orderly and amicable. And do you really want to go back to square one with the Lib Dems? And meanwhile, can we tell you about our domestic agenda? We want to spend more money on the NHS, on schools, on the police, on everything, actually, pretty much. And I think that is why they think now is such a good time for them to have an election. One of their worries is that if you had an election after Brexit well, certainly the worry of several cabinets we've spoken to is that one of their worries is an election after Brexit, the lever emotional energy dissipates. So if you were a, a former Labour voter who was going to maybe lend Boris Johnson his vote, your vote to get Brexit done, you think, oh, now actually I'm, I'm going to go back to Labour. While as the Remainers stay emotionally engaged with this issue, so the Tories lose their 2015 Remainers, but don't make enough gains elsewhere to make up for that. James, in the cover piece, it's pointed out that there are several Tories who are feeling more optimistic because they no longer have to threaten no deal or face questions about how Boris Johnson might not be able to renegotiate and that could lead to a no deal Brexit WTO terms. And that makes many in Lib Dem, Marginals and others feel they're in a stronger position. Do you sense that figures in Labour feel any regret about not going for that September election? Because at that point, the Tories would have had to face those questions, whereas now they have a deal ready to go. No, not all. In fact, if anything, I actually think 
you know, look, the longer this deal goes on, every day something new comes out about it that, that's not going to be sit very well with them. I mean, this government, I view it as a very short-term government, and it's held together with a very sort of shaky coalition. You've got Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Dorries in this government, and you've also got Nicky Morgan. I mean, that's not there to last very long, in my humble view, you know. And I think the longer it goes on, the more shaky it will get. You've already seen some shots fired between Preeti Patel and Matt Hancock. You've seen this briefing in the recent days over um, Eddie Lister and Dominic Cummings falling out and I think more of that will continue and over a deal in particular because as I said the more scrutiny it gets the more it will be you know as I said you'll hear the on loop played back at the Prime Minister his own views on his own deal which is that Boris Johnson this time last year was opposed to Boris Johnson's deal and I think that will that will invigorate probably the Brexit tier party that's that's hurting them so I mean I think there's two scenarios that could play out and I think on that one scenario in which they um, they sue for a deal and, and they think that's the sort of like, you know, get a jail card, there's a lot of downside to that as well that Labour could exploit. And James, looking at the various forces uh, that the Conservatives would be up against, I realise there's two James on these podcasts, oh, yeah. so I'm going to start differentiating. <laughs> Spectator James. Is that me? And Labour James. There we go. <laughs> I'm worried about being called Labour James because there's a notorious thing that happened on Twitter where Owen Smith accused me of being called a, a person whose Twitter handle was Labour James. It wasn't me. And, and, and then had a massive long Twitter tirade accusing me of being someone that I wasn't who was giving a view so well, we've got cool, that disclaimer cool, now cool, yeah <laughs> just so you know I am not Labour James Owen Smith you're listening <laughs> we're getting there spectator James when it comes to that election how did number 10 see the threat of the Brexit party because there were some concerns if Boris Johnson had a deal the Brexit party and they have done this would say it was Brexit in name only has that message landed well I think the telling thing about this is that last night Alistair Campbell went on the Andrew Neil show on the BBC and said, the BBC aren't having Nigel Farage on enough. I think we need to hear more from Nigel Farage. And, you know, that is the world turned upside down, part 94. But there's also a very telling reason for that. The reason he wants more Nigel Farage is that on the Remain side of the argument, there is frustration that this about how well this deal has landed with Brexiteers. That you know this, and I think this is the point. That motive matters in politics. So Leave supporters are prepared to accept compromises from Boris Johnson, who delivered that Leave victory in 2016 in a way they simply weren't from Theresa May. Now James was making the point about Labour and you know pulling the deal apart and finding the kind of hidden horrors in it. But so far, all those hidden horrors have been confined to Northern Ireland. And to be, this isn't a particularly praiseworthy thing about the British electorate, but I think it is true. I think if these horrors are about Northern Ireland, not about anything else, I don't think they were going to particularly register with voters on the mainland. I think the mainland has always had a rather distant attitude towards Northern Ireland, and the government's defence that Northern Ireland gets to vote on whether to continue these arrangements or not, I think is probably sufficient evidence. I don't think people at the next election are going to say, well, I was going to vote Tory, but then I found out that Northern Irish businesses were going to have to fill out an export form, and I decided not to. I mean, I think that is... So I think, I think in a way, the problem for Labour is they've concentrated on what's new in the deal rather than pointing out how much of a deal is simply the same as the May deal. I, mean, I agree up to a point. I think you know, the mainland still includes the west of Scotland and I don't think necessarily Northern Ireland issues are, are, are someone who's worked and lived in Scotland. You know, there's a, there's a big unionist vote there and there'll be Tory seats that they'll be relying on unionist votes. If the unionist community, they are closely linked, feel that this is detrimental to Northern Ireland and to unionist cause they will be upset about it and that, that will have an impact but no I agree with you I think the one thing I would say though is that look 
Brigham the other night on Newsnight said that he had a phone call from, I mean, I'm not going to give Andrew Brigham too much credibility here, but he did, he'd have a phone call, he said, from Aaron Banks, who says he backs Boris's deal. I mean, I thought I was surprised that that didn't get more coverage, to be honest with you. And I think there's divisions in the Brexit party yeah. itself, hence why Alice wants to promote Nigel Farage, and you see Richard Tice running around the studios at the moment. But, you know, I think that actually helps us, because I think where the Brexit party hits us in the north, I think they'll be very much, you know, very very sensitive to a sort of, um, especially you know, very much to this sort of uh, Atlanticization of the country and the economic model that's clearly going to be promoted even further. And I think the longer that goes on, the more that message gets out there. And people up there who probably want more of an um, interventionist state will be very happy. Labour voters that, you know, this strategy they're relying on taking off us, I think will be very opposed to that. And the longer it goes on, the more they'll have to listen to it. You see, this is another reason why an election after Brexit is done. It's complicated for the Tories because at the moment... It's get Brexit done, as you were saying, James. So after Brexit is a fact, suddenly the Labour Brexit of stay very closely aligned with the EU on workers' rights, stay in the customs union so that you can't do trade deals with you know with hyper competitive countries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All that has more of an appeal in those seats. Well, as now though, I think there is that emotional appeal of you voted for this and the politicians won't deliver it, which I think is quite powerful. James, what? Labour James, but not Labour James on Twitter. Um, what do you see as the greatest challenges for the Labour Party in an election before Christmas? Okay. I mean, I'll be honest with the weather. I mean, it's, it's, it, I, mean I know it's... Um Maybe everyone tries to say, oh, it doesn't have an effect. It does. I mean, someone who's worked in those roles, getting out our vote, especially in certain seats, I mean, you know, it is a very tough thing for us. And, you know, and that's before you think of the modern way of how our sort of voting pools will be laid out and we're looking for people who, you know, where they are and how efficient your vote's going to be. You know, things like term time come into it as well with our young vote. You know, this has a play, that does, it does play a massive part in it. Uh, so, I, you know, that's why, I mean, for me personally, I'd, would hate to have an election in, over winter as a Labour person. But you know, so I think there's trade-offs. As I said before, there's two scenarios. There's one where the Brexit deal was done and then Labour has to argue for the peace, as it were, and has to make the case for what the transformative economy would be like. I think we can beat the Tories on that, especially in the, if their strategy is predicated, and I believe it is, on Northern voters and especially uh, women voters of 35 upwards, then they're going to be... Want, they're, I think, they, and as we found in 2017, they'll be much more open to our much more progressive case regarding a lot of our family-friendly policies. Compare that to in the, you know what the toys will offer. We'll offer it a much more gold standard version. And then the, the, the other scenario is, is is if we doesn't go early, the sort of Dom Cumming scenario, if you like. I equally think that's not as easy one for the toys because if we're going to unite that Remain and soft Brexit vote that we've got to do and build that coalition that we did in 2017 you know because uh, bear in mind we're looking at different voters here that's the strat- the strategic choice here and this is people we ignore is that we have a polarised electorate and that also plays into electoral terms so we're l- looking at different voters than they are and we're, l- we're we're casting our net if you like in a different different pools and what we need to do is align those those two groups together you can do that around a second referendum position where we offer people who want a soft Brexit you look you can still make a case for this that, that dream's not going to die you have a choice put to you for soft Brexit option that you'd like and he can say to the Remain community, look, you can vote for Lib Dems and usher in a Tory government. You vote for us, you need to get a second referendum. And I think in particular in Scotland with the SNP, you'd be, uh, voters up there, you say, look, it's a national election. Do you want more like a Labour government? And you'd have a second referendum on that. I think they'd be very up for that, SNP voters who used to vote Labour. Now, 
Moving away from Brexit briefly, if we do have a general election before Brexit has been delivered, there will still be a push, particularly from the Labour side, to focus on domestic issues. James, one of the things we've learned is this idea that the Conservatives are quite keen to move away from Gordon Brown-style price tags when it comes to their their economic message. How do you think they are planning to put some clear blue water between themselves and Labour in terms of their domestic policy agenda? Because lots of people say that actually the Conservatives have moved towards Labour in terms of spending. Well, I think a lot of what Labour's doing is actually a, a tribute to Labour's 2017 campaign. I mean, they, they have they have realised that you can't go after traditional Labour voters, the people who use, normally vote Labour with a classic Tory economic offer. So hence, you are getting a lot more emphasis on spending on the NHS, a lot more emphasis on spending on the police, on education. But I think they will try and play on the idea that... The Tories are going to spend more money, austerity is over, but you can kind of trust them not to let things get out of control. While as Labour's instinctive desire to spend more money means there'll be more stuff. And then there's you, the, your, your point that you were making in the piece, which is that, you know, the, Theresa May got remarkably little political credit for how much money she put into the NHS. So I think all the NHS stuff will be done in terms of, you know, X number of new hospitals built, X number of nurses. You can see that when they talk about the police, right, they talk about hiring 20,000 more police. They don't talk about a a figure in billions. And I think that is because they look at how little credit Theresa May got for the largest spending injection into the NHS in decades. And they're determined not to repeat that. From your perspective, James, of working in Labour, so we're back to Labour, James, here, of working (laughs) in Labour on on, on campaigns, (laughs) do you think that it makes life more difficult difficult for Labour going into a general election now that it does seem as though the Conservative Party has shifted somewhat if you look at their domestic policies so the fact they are pledging more money on things like law and order on the NHS. I'm old enough to remember when the the Conservatives used to critique Gordon Brown not for the pound signs but for the the, the sort of tractor stats they used to call it didn't they? It was like X number of officers X number of that I mean Tories used to criticise us from the right for that so to see them now saying oh this is the way you do it no not the Gordon I mean that was the Gordon Brown strategy by the way (laughs) to to visualise the benefits of the Labour government. Look, my, my point is, uh, my view is that Labour, the Labour Party won't, you can't, we can't, I don't think we necessarily can fight the same election 2017 again. And I don't think we can f- fight solely on an anti-austerity ticket. I think we have to actually broaden it and actually develop a narrative where the country is. And we've got the policies now there. You know, po- former policies I worked on, like the four-day, uh, sorry, the three-day weekend, I like to call it, and obviously uh, our sort of building more of a stakeholder society. Those kind of policies, I think, actually are quite transformative and, th- and they'll cut across political divides. I mean, for the Conservative, if they want to get into a sort of Dutch auction with us, I'm happy to get into that because I think we'll win. And, uh, and the difference between that is also, if you look at the commitment on, on hospitals, you say he wants to build, what, 40 hospitals and it's come out of six. The, over a course of a campaign, especially when there's broadcaster parity, the sort of lies and disinformation from number 10, or not, not the 10 then, but from Boris Johnson in particular, it will hurt his brand even more. I mean, it, it, it really will, especially if that group of people he wants to reach out to. You know, one of the things that, you know, used to come back in the first groups for us, so Jeremy's actually quite trusted among that group that he's trying to target I think if he's going out and he's basically saying policies that don't stack up and he's pushing forward you know as you say these big sort of um, ticket things that you know we can mince and we can rebut very quickly and the Labour Party staff and the research you know are very good at this by the way I think it will add to the you can't trust him and it will undermine his um, USP which is what actually also happened to Theresa May I think the the three day week thing is fascinating the three day weekend as you call it is fascinating because when Labour announced that there was definitely some Tory nervousness about whether this was going to be 2017 all over again and how popular it was 
And they were hugely relieved that in all their focus groups, they ran after the Labour conference. Voters thought it was an incredible idea. They, they couldn't, they, they, they basically, they couldn't work out how it was going to work. And they basically thought it was kind of Labour something for nothing. And I thought it was quite interesting that they went from some proper nervousness about the policy and its potential mm-hmm. popularity to Boris Johnson feeling kind of confident enough to just ridicule it in his conference speech. And I think this is... You, you frame it like I framed it, Paul. No, no, no. <laughs> but it, it, is, it is an interesting <laughs> question, which is they think, you know, there is a growing confidence, I think, on the Tory side, but the souffle isn't going to rise twice. That, um, that there a, was a confidence last time, though, wasn't there? No, no, but, but I, think that, you know, I think they look at the... I think if you look at the... Not, I think Corbyn is much better, better known now than he was in 2017. I, I, I think that agree, is harder. I don't agree. And I think if you look at the, if you look after that election, right, he was at, what was he at with Labour voters? He was at kind of plus one, right? He's now minus 27. The Tories are a 25 point lead when they called that election. Theresa May did really well. I mean, like, God, it's not because I'm on the Spectator programme defending Theresa May, by the way. But like, I don't think she does get credit. You have to change your name. (laughs) God, don't start. I've owned Smith tweeting at me (laughs) again. No, she doesn't get enough credit, I don't think, for that election. She got 40, was it 42% in the polls? I mean, Name me a Tory leader that wouldn't bite your arm off for that. I mean, what happened was, and sadly we don't get enough credit for this, I don't think, is that we ran a really good campaign and Jeremy did really well. I mean, that's the inconvenient truth for a lot of um, politics watchers. Thank you, James. And thank you, James. Hello, I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk Next. That was the sound of explosions in northern Stockholm last year, where two people were injured in what is believed to have been a hand grenade attack. In the last few years, Sweden's been hit by hundreds of explosions thought to be gang-related. In this week's issue, Quillette Europe editor Paulina Newding reports that the public are now so normalised to them that they sometimes even fail to make the evening news. So, why is this happening? Paulina joins me down the line from Stockholm, together with Amir Rostami, superintendent of the Swedish police and criminologist. Paulina, we think of Sweden as being a pretty stable and peaceful place, but your piece in this week's issue sort of suggests the opposite. Can you explain what exactly has been happening there? So we have uh, we've had a dramatic rise in uh, gang-related shootings and uh, gang-related explosions, as we call them, which is um, suspected bombings and hand grenade attacks. And we've reached a level where we we had in the first six months of this year we had more than a hundred explosions, which are suspected uh, attacks, bombings. And I mean, Paulina's piece she suggests that the violence isn't just hitting the gangs; it's also starting to hit the wider public. How are the wider public responding to this increase in violence? I think the the response uh, is at the different uh, dimensions. One is that people are shocked: is this happening to Sweden? Why is this happening to Sweden? And how does it affect me as a citizen? Because we have seen during the past two three years that. You know, ordinary citizens uh, have been affected. Uh, bystanders who have been shot or hand grenades attacked who have been, uh, you know, uh, thrown in wrong apartments, injuring people, 
couple of months ago, we had a, a young student walking on the street and an explosive went off and she is almost blind, as I, I have understood it. So, so this is, you know, the question is now is, should I as a citizen be worrying of becoming part of a, a gang shooting or a explosive in Sweden? So it's, yeah, it's affecting people. Can you tell us a bit more about these gangs? I mean, what exactly are they trying to achieve with with these attacks? I, I think basically it's about power demonstration. Power demonstration in combination with uh, ineffective crime policy and crime prevention in Sweden has created a vacuum where uh, we have we are not able to you know suppress gangs anymore. We had this capacity a couple of years ago. So at the moment, it doesn't cost gangs anything to be, you know, get involved in shooting or hand grenades attacks. So power struggling, it could be, you know, about illegal markets, power demonstration, and so on. So it's a violence, it's, you know, a natural element of the gang life. And you could see it in UK, you can see it in other countries. And when you don't have a powerful force that can suppress this kind of uh, elements, then you have the, the situation that we have in Sweden. Hmm. And as Amir says, it doesn't cost anything. If you look at the statistics over clearance rates, um, one out of ten bombings are solved. And uh, when it comes to deadly bombings, for instance, uh, a British eight-year-old boy who was killed in a hand grenade attack in, in Gothenburg in Sweden, zero, none, none have been solved in the last few years. So it really, the risk of uh, going to prison for, for any of these attacks is very, very low. And even, even I would just add to that, Paulina, when it comes to fire-related homicides, our, our clearance rate is about 20%. So eight of ten homicides are unsolved, and that's a problem. And the Paulina also writes in her piece that the issue of gang violence is intimately tied to the issue of immigration. Do, do you agree with that? I, I, both yes and no. It depends what you mean tied with the uh, with immigration. I think Paulina would could elaborate on that. Uh, but of course, when you have uh, a, a poor integration, it becomes a breeding ground, breeding ground for every you know, different kind of social problem. It could be radicalization, it could be, it could be gangs, especially street gangs that are you know, linked and merged from uh, poor neighborhoods. And our poor neighborhoods are mostly the residents are, are foreign, with foreign backgrounds. But believing that crime is tied to ethnicity or tied to cultural dimension, that could be a very small explanation. I think this, the, the crime problem of Sweden is complex and immigration or I would say lack of, of integration is one of the explanation that could, that could explain why we have these kind of problems. Paulina, do you want to respond to that? Well, it's important to, to understand that many of these gangs operate out of uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged immigrant areas mainly. And if you look at gang shootings, for instance, nine out of ten uh, suspects had a first or second generation immigrant background. So there's a very clear link to Sweden's vulnerable immigrant areas or, or these parallel societies, which have very big problems with, um, you know, 
unemployment is high, uh, school results are, are low, crime is high. You have parallel structures which undermine the Swedish state, the clan structures which, which challenge the, the Swedish authorities. Uh, so there's, I mean, there's clearly a link to, to these areas and to failed integration. I think that's beyond any doubt. I should add something on that. I think this is one part of the complexity of the situation in Sweden is the, the, the crime paradox. As Paulina was mentioning, that we see that when it comes to serious violence regarding hand grenade attacks, regarding gang violence, is clustered in, in some certain areas. But as a, as a general, you don't see a, a collapse of the Swedish system. So this is paradox. So you have, you have areas that is very troubling, and we are not we are we are not handling the situation as it should be. And other parts of Sweden that you see that everything is going as normal and everything is is developing in right direction. So you have two parallel realities in Sweden, and this is a little bit challenging for the Swede, the image of the welfare exactly. state of Sweden. Sweden is a is a deeply divided society at this point where we have areas in in the bigger cities where women don't feel safe walking out at night where they risk being told that they are wearing too short skirts and and so on and on the other hand we have um, a sweden where people take paternity leave and <laughs> crime levels are very low and mm. and uh, as low as they always have been so so it's a deeply deeply divided society at this point Paulina, just finally i mean you talk in your piece about people being nervous to discuss this in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And, you, and you use this phrase safety deniers, which is sort of leveled with kind of climate <laughs> deniers. I mean, what, is, is yes. that why people are nervous? Because they, they're worried about being depicted as being bigoted. Mm. So uh, Dagens Nyheter, which is Sweden's le- leading liberal daily, came up with this term safety deniers to to compare people who who deny that, people, that Sweden is safer than ever to, you know, loony climate deniers. And um, that's a big part of the problem, that large parts of the Swedish media establishment and the Swedish political establishment for a very long time denied that, we, that this problem is real and that it's serious because it's so intimately tied to the issue of integration and immigration. And that's why it's so sensitive. Amir, do you want to res- respond to that? Uh, I agree with Paulina that it has been, I think, the topic of both uh, organized crime and radicalization have been, you know, at, at, at least in the academia in some part of the other sector of society, as such as law enforcement. We have been discussing this for almost two, three decades. But uh, I, I agree with Paulina, it, the, the, it hasn't received the attention that it has, you know, the necessary attention. And you could d- discuss why. And, I, and it's, uh, to be honest, I don't have the empirical fact to say it's because it's too sensitive or people don't understand the situation or as easy as they don't believe that this is this is happening in Sweden because they live in areas they don't see these kind of problems. So it could be a variety of different explanations. But uh, yeah, we, uh, unfortunately, it hasn't received the, the attention it, it needed uh, during the 90s and, and during the beginning of the millennium. Thank you, Paulina and Amir. This episode is sponsored by More Than a Number, the brand new podcast from the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. 
And finally, are you saying and I when you mean and me? Mark Mason has noticed more and more people getting muddled up over which is right, from politicians like Jess Phillips to journalists who really should know better. But he argues in this week's issue that these mistakes aren't really a big problem. Language is just a convention anyway. So, is he right? I'm joined by Mark, together with Sam Leith, The Spectator's literary editor. Mark, can you start by telling Sam and I, Sam and me, about the problem <laughs> you've identified in this week's issue? Very cleverly started off there, Lara. Yes, it's, I've noticed more and more people are either saying or writing and I when they mean and me. And you can see why they're doing it. They're trying to avoid the old mistake of Terry and me went to the pub, which of course should be Terry and I went to the pub. So there's this notion that and I is correct. And I think the Queen might have something to do with it as well, because she always says, my husband and I. So you think that's the posh, correct way of talking. But people are actually starting to, to, to do it when they don't mean it, as in the taxi took Terry and I to the pub. Well, it isn't. It should be the taxi took Terry and me to the pub. And it's really intriguing. This isn't a piece where I'm saying, oh, this is right, this is wrong. I'm arguing in a way, well, I'm arguing precisely against the notion of right and wrong. And what intrigues me is that people are obviously so scared that there is a right and wrong that they're, if you like, correcting themselves into doing the wrong thing. And so I, I just hate the tyranny of this attitude to language that something is right, something is wrong, and we're all scared of saying the wrong thing or spelling a word incorrectly. Uh, so that's how the piece started off. And Sam, I mean, are we, is there a right and wrong way of doing this, or can we be quite vague? Well, I think I'm very sort of Tony Blairish about this and third wayish, which is, you know, the old argument in language is exactly between the so-called prescriptivists who say, you know, there is the Queen's English or the King's English or whoever's English it is, and that's correct and everything else is barbaric. And descriptivists, who are generally the sort of academic linguists, who say, well, look, you know, there aren't rules for language. There isn't a, you know, there isn't an umpire. And if there was a right way and a wrong way and language didn't change according to usage, you know, we'd all still be speaking Roman or Norman French or (laughs) Proto-Indo-European or whatever it is. Um, So... The third way, essentially, is to say, of course, you know, language doesn't have those sort of exact rules of correctness that behave like the laws of physics, but it does have conventions. And in one of its most important dialects, standard English, standard written English or standard spoken English, there are usages that you might as well call right and wrong in the same way that, you know, driving on one side of the road is not a law of physics, it's a convention, (laughs) but... You know, you're going to be in trouble if you're driving on the wrong side of the road. You know, that's a a rather bad taste analogy at this point. um, QED. I think it's worth generally trying to hove as closely as possible to to standard usage when, you know, in a situation where it's warranted. Yeah, I think probably I'm with Sam. I hate to be an uncontroversial bit of the podcast where we're sort of agreeing with each (laughs) other, but I know that goes against all rules of podcasts. But yeah, I'm the same as Sam, of course. You know, if you see something where it's completely misspelled and there's no punctuation and there's no thought gone into it, yes, there are sort of conventions that make make life easy. What intrigues me about this is that I think that attitude that's in your head that people are starting to say, and people who really know their stuff, are doing it. Jonathan Agnew did it on TMS recently. He was interviewing someone and described off-the-record interviews as ones where you have to tell the interviewee, this is between you and I. Well, he doesn't mean it's between you and me. And it's, it's intriguing how even people who are really confident in their English are starting to make this mistake. Well, I think it's what, it's, what, it's what linguists call a hyper-correction. Yeah. It's the, you, you know, you... But there, there is also quite often what's happening is the work of analogy. 
is being mistakenly done. You know, you, you know, for instance, that, you know, it's my wife and I, you know, as you say in the Queen, you know, my husband and I. Mm. And so you sort of transplant that wholesale even into the object case when you yeah. needn't. And, you, yeah. you know, a similar thing happens with myself. You oh. know, please contact myself oh. for your earliest convenience. <laughs> in fact, I wrote that piece of stuff about five years ago. Yes, well, you're so, call centre people, it's uh, we've tried to get in touch with yourself. And, oh. <laughs> and that's actually well brought up, Sam. You've reminded me of something from a piece five years <laughs> ago. Else that's that's exactly the same thing that happens. It's people who are con- more concerned with the way they're saying something than what they're saying. And the sort of people, I'm sure you've both had this, at parties who find out that you're a writer and the sort of horrible old stick in the mud, you go, oh, well, you must be very keen on the correct use of punctuation at school. And they are the people who come out with the most cliche-ridden, least entertaining, least interesting, least rich language. But they'll be happy because all the semicolons are in the right place and all that sort of (laughs) stuff. And it's really depressing. And I saw it at school a couple of years ago. My son, his teacher, thankfully, who's in charge of English for the whole school, this would be when he was about seven or eight years old, my son, told me that they are now, Ofsted guidelines now tell you that speech marks and inverted commas, which all three of us who write for a living know, if, if I said, if I put those phrases in conversation, if I'd used either of them, you would know exactly what I meant. They're now taught, the kids, they have to be taught that one of them is right and one of them is wrong. And as I said in the piece in the magazine this week, I thought about, I couldn't remember which was which, because obviously I'm not an Ofsted idiot who would think that one of them was right to start with and one of them was wrong. So I thought, well, I'll go and look it up. And I thought, no, I just cannot be bothered. I will, as a sign of how ridiculous this is, I'm just going to put it in the piece. I, I cannot remember which one the kids are now taught is right and which is wrong. So it's, it's a horrible attitude that kids, you see kids, I saw a neighbour's friend a few years ago, was almost literally shaking with fear at a spelling test at school. And you could tell that her love of language, this was a girl who really enjoyed reading, was just being beaten out of her by this system that insists on right and wrong the whole time. Now, as as Sam says, we all grow up and the intelligent ones amongst us get a sense for the conventions and when you stick to them and when you don't. But by and large, if you beat the conventions into the kids' heads at an early age, it has some horrible results. Yeah, the odd thing is that actually, you know, in as much as language does have very definite rules to do with its grammatical structure, but the rules are generally not the same things that, if you like, prescriptive grammarians insist the rules. So one of the weird rules of language is the order of adjectives, you know, about this. Yeah. That, yes, that, yes. You know, you, you say big yellow taxi rather than yellow yeah. big taxi, and every yeah. native English speaker will get those adjectives the right way around because for some reason adjectives of colour come before adjectives yeah. of, ad, come after size, adjectives yeah. of size. And yet the rules that tend to be insisted on are the ones that actually often like split infinitives or, you know, the meanings of certain words etymologically derived yeah, yeah. are actually either, you know, folklore or myths, yeah. you know. Um, I before E except after C. There are more exceptions to that rule than there are words <laughs> yes. that stick to the rule. But then that's a helpful mnemonic or an unhelpful mnemonic rather than, <laughs> rather than as a linguistic rule anyway. And Sam, is, I mean, is there a helpful rule for people who want to remember when it should be I or my? Is it just Well, I, I would say the... The obvious thing to do is you take out. It, it's always the confusion always arises when you've got a double subject. When it's you know my wife and I, my wife and me. You know he drove my wife and me. My wife and I went to the opera. It's just take out the other one. Just do the, yeah. the I because you would never say, you know, unless you're Tarzan. <laughs> you know, me went to the opera. Um, so you're gonna you you use that. Just simplify the sentence and and once you've got the pronoun. For yourself, you're you're going to get that right. There we go. Um, I was going to ask you, Sam. A few of the examples that Mark mentions are from social media. Do you think social media has made people more or less aware of their grammar? I think social media. I mean, there's a great deal of doomsaying and wailing about the idea that our 
children are all going to be totally illiterate because they're using these very informal texts. I, I take exactly the opposite view, which is that all of us do what ling linguists call code switching. We can change the language we're using. We're all in command of more than one English, more than one dialect of English. And obviously there is, which is very important, standard written English, you know, formal usage that you would use, you know, if you're writing an article for the Spectator. But actually social media, the idea that children are, are going to become teenagers and they're going to put lots of smiley faces and lols in their job applications is horse manure. We've always been able to command different registers of language. There are huge linguistic resources and new conventions and expressive resources that are available now in the different registers of social media, of email, of instant messaging. And the fact is we've got a generation of children now which is more immersed in text day long than probably any previous generation in history. And that can only mean that actually it's a more literate rather than a less literate generation. Yeah, I remember that. Well, I think we both remember the days when the only thing to read was the cereal packet on the breakfast table. If you'd read that day's newspaper and you'd finished your book from the library, though, you'd run out of stuff to read and you were really frustrated. And kids just do not have that problem now. There's always something there. And you said, absolutely, it's going to keep them reading as long as they're not beaten into have these ridiculous rules beaten into their heads about what's right and what's wrong. Then the reading is there to be done and they'll flourish with it. Thank you, Sam and Mark. And that's everything for this week. If you want more from Sam, you can listen to his books podcast at spectator.co.uk forward slash books podcast. You can listen to all of his interviews with authors from Joseph Stieglitz to Brett Easton Ellis. If you pick up this week's issue, you can also read all of the pieces we've discussed, as well as Joan Collins' diary and a Halloween ghost story from Susan Hill. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. Thanks to our sponsor, More Than a Number, the new podcast from ICAEW. Here presenter Louise Cooper in discussion with thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Are businesses ill-prepared to cope with climate change? Is workplace inequality inevitable? And do businesses really have an age problem? Simply search for More Than a Number in your podcast app to download now.